Thanks, Steve. Three cartoons that will make you think and simulate your capacity for abstract thought. Uh, mom's putting child to bed and says, yes, the disciples follow Jesus, but not on Facebook. <laughs> you have to interpret it in context. This is a preacher trying to be trendy, and we all want to be trendy and relevant, right? Blog unto others, as you would have them blog unto you. Spam not, lest ye be spammed. Though I surf through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no virus. <laughs> and then the last one, this is uh, a preacher putting a different spin on an old saying. Give a man a fish, and he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish, and you can sell him all your old gear on eBay. Okay, there you have it. That's kind of overwhelming if you haven't seen it before, but those are the 26 major events in the life of Christ in alphabetical order, and we're going to break them down into sets of five, and I'm going to restrain myself and, and try to be really concise so we can get a good feel for the whole thing today. Uh, but as we break them down into three units of three, I'm going to assign different groups in the congregation to be sure to remember these particular five. So for those of you in the balcony, in the balcony are the people on either side of the sound system there with David, including David. I'm going to especially want you to know that A through E stands for angels announce the pregnancy, first of John the Baptist and then of Jesus, birth of Jesus the Messiah in Bethlehem as predicted in Micah 5, 2. Carpentry career, that's what Jesus did as a working man, Joe, before at about age 30, as Luke says, he begins his public ministry. At the very beginning of his public ministry, after being an apprentice and working with his hands for at least 18 years, Aubrey, the two events that really inaugurate the beginning of the Lord's public ministry are his baptism and his temptation, and that's D and E, okay? D, the dove descends at the baptism. E, enemy entices. Okay? So let's walk. So, Balcony, you got that? You got that yet? I want you to have that. I'm going to expect you to know that. We're going to go over it and then get ready. You're going to shout it out to me. A, angels announce. Different kind of angels. But, uh, yeah, an angel appears to Gabriel, who's a high priest, or who's a priest, not a high priest, in the temple, and says, boom, even though... You and your wife are too old to have children. You're going to have a child. You're going to have a super normal pregnancy. And he's going to be the prophet the Old Testament said would come right before the Messiah. And then months later, an angel comes to Mary first and Joseph and says, you're it. You're not going to have a super normal pregnancy. You're going to have a supernatural conception, virgin conception, nine months later, virgin birth, uh, and he will be the Messiah. B stands for birth in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Old Testament prophet Micah said the Messiah is going to be born in the house of bread, the same city where David, King David, had been born. Uh, we talk about Jesus being a Jewish carpenter, right, David? Like uh, your brother. Um, he, oh, except he's not Jewish. Uh, <laughs> but the word translated carpenter in the original is tekton, which means worker in wood or stone. So he's not necessarily just building benches and tables and even the framework of houses. Uh, he may be building other things. During Jesus' working lifetime as a carpenter, he grew up in Nazareth uh, after being born in Bethlehem. That's where he worked as a carpenter, a technon, a worker with wood and stone. During his lifetime, there was a large city that was built by the Roman occupation force called Sepphoris, just a couple miles north of his hometown. They recruited artisans from hundreds of miles, including certainly the Lord Jesus as a tecton would have worked in Sepphoris. And when you go there sometime, I hope with me sooner rather than later, you'll see some amazing mosaic floors laid in that city just north of Nazareth. And Jesus as a tecton might have laid those floors. This is what's left of uh, beautiful mosaic, and she's called the Mona Lisa of Galilee for obvious reasons. So C, carpentry career. Now the beginning of the ministry is D and E. Dove descends at the baptism. What happens at the baptism? 
the righteousness of Christ is declared by God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, right? Now, we don't know anything about the life of Jesus from age 12, the incident Luke talks about at the temple, and what he says, Luke says, he begins his ministry about 30. So we've got 18 years. We don't know what's happening there. The History Channel thinks it knows but I, I'm going to tell you, Derek, he was a carpenter in and around Nazareth. And whatever he did at the beginning of his ministry, he's still perfect. Okay, There are no closets or skeletons in any closets because the voice of God the Father says, this is my son and I like him. He's perfect. He's exactly what we need to be the Savior of the world. And then immediately after having his righteousness declared by the voice of God the Father, Jesus goes out and has his righteousness demonstrated going one-on-one as the last Adam. Adam's tempted and falls. The last Adam is tempted under the most rigorous conditions and succeeds, right? Uh, I like that statement in Matthew about uh, the, where the Father is affirming the righteousness of Christ there, and that's an important one, okay? It's also a good passage on the Trinity, one God, three persons. Where do you see the Trinity in Scripture? A lot of places, including the baptism, right? You've got the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the voice of God, the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Holy Spirit descends as it were in the form of a dove. Okay, balcony, you ready? A stands for what? Angel denounced the pregnancies, right? B stands for? Yeah, nice, Colleen, good. C? Yeah, might have laid those mosaic floors in Sepphoris. D, the baptism, and then E, enemy entice us. So, boom, we're, we're rolling. We've begun uh, the ministry of Christ. Now, can you guys handle this? You guys are now in control of uh, F, G, H, I, and J, okay? You guys drive all the way in from Texas. We put you to work, you know? That's what Oklahomans do. We make things happen. Uh First followers, uh, in John 1, we read about uh, an incident that happens right after Jesus is tempted. He goes to where John the Baptist is preaching. John the Baptist is the prophet the Old Testament said would come just before the Messiah to point Jesus, the Messiah Jesus out to the nation. So Jesus goes back to where John the Baptist is preaching, and what does John the Baptist do? He starts funneling his disciples to Christ, you know. He says, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And particularly at the end of John chapter 1, we're told about five of the very first followers of Jesus. And uh, if you use the acronym JAPAN, you can remember that. It would be John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. It's a little fudge factor there, but those are the first five followers, okay? John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell you about Jesus confronting these fishermen at work and saying, come up and follow me. And people say, that's how you get saved. You leave your job, leave your family, and follow Jesus. No. When he's talking to those guys and saying, leave and follow me, they're already believers. He he met them in John chapter 1, and he said, you guys are going to have a special ministry. Be ready to go on a moment's notice. Like Minutemen back in 1776. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, first followers, John chapter 1. G, one of the first major things Jesus does with his first followers is he goes to a wedding. The Mormons will say that's where Jesus got married the first time. John 2 says Jesus was invited to the wedding. And I always say, you know, if you're a groom and have to be invited, there's a problem. It's just assume. And Derek, you didn't get a wedding invitation. You, you understood she wanted you to be there, you know. But uh, Jesus uh, was at this uh, wedding, uh, and, and they had the wedding reception, and they ran out of wine, and that's where he turned uh, water into wine. Some denominations say water into Kool-Aid. However, uh, you can go to Cana and uh, ask Homer. He bought some wine in Cana, if I remember right, right there at that souvenir, souvenir shop. Yeah. And uh, we're going to save it for a rainy day, all right? Save it for my retirement banquet. That'd be, that'd be good. Um, and it, we're told that the water pots Jesus filled with water, had filled with water, were 20 to 30 gallons a piece, pretty big. And I've had this picture for a long time, and without any context, it doesn't help. And I told you I had a, 
another picture of Julie peering into one, and I finally found it. And there it is. So you can tell it's a pretty large water pot. Right? So we've got uh, what? We've got first followers, uh, great guests at the wedding feast where Jesus does his first miracle, turns water into wine. And then we have H, harsh house cleaning. And you read about this in John 2 where Jesus cleanses the temple because a bunch of religious people are making money and ripping people off by selling uh, inadequate things for temple worship. And we talk about Jesus being in the temple. And you're saying, well, I, I studied Old Testament, and we were told only the priest could go in the temple building. Yeah, but in Jesus' day, and you can actually walk on those or st- sit on those steps, the southern steps, that's the main way in. That's south. By the way, the Wailing Wall is the outside part of that, part of that wall around the Temple Mount. But the Temple Mount would have looked like this, and anything inside of this whole area would be called in the Temple uh, Huron, and then inside the building is Nas. It's just a different Greek word, but in English we don't get that specific. And the point is, when the Messiah finally shows up after thousands of years of prophecy, he finds institutional religion all messed up. Large bureaucracies tend to get corrupt, and the large religious bureaucracy that was started by God with the Jewish people, with the Scripture, with the prophets, was totally corrupt and more into making money and self-righteousness than actually looking for the Messiah. So he puts them out of business for a day and just says, you know, I'm here. And they confront him after. The religious leaders say, you'd have to be the Messiah to put us out of business. Uh, give us a sign. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. What's the ultimate sign that Jesus, not Muhammad, is the way, the truth, and the life? His resurrection. And that's what he's talking about at the very beginning of his ministry, harsh house cleaning. While in Jerusalem and doing the harsh house cleaning in chapter 2 of John, we have the incredible interview with Nicodemus, a very religious, very self-righteous, and very righteous person and Jesus says, unless you're born spiritually, you can't go to heaven. It's not you can put a veneer of religiosity on yourself and be good enough. You've got to receive a whole new life, and you receive that not through your efforts or your work, but through faith in me. And it's in that context of Jesus interacting with probably the most visible, most respected rabbi, religious leader in Judaism at the time. It's in that context we have John 3.16, probably my favorite verse, God the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, loved the world full of not just immoral, irreligious sinners like the woman at the well, but religious, nice people who don't have a connection with God either like Nicodemus. He loved the world so much he gave his unique son, second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the active agent of salvation, that whosoever believeth in him, and Carolyn doesn't say whosoever, it says everyone who believes in him, all of the ones who believe in him. That's what the original says. Shall not future tense perish like a fire, but have present tense everlasting life. And then the final letter in this set of five, after incredible interview, is jive at Jacob's well. As Jesus and his first followers leave Jerusalem in the southern area of Judea, They go through Samaria. No self-respecting Jew would go through Samaria because there are spiritual cooties in Samaria. But Jesus didn't believe in the cootie theory of spirituality. He goes right through um, the center of Samaria, and he bumps into a woman who's so immoral, the Samaritan women won't even interact with her. That's why she's out there getting water at noon. Nobody gets water at noon in the Middle East. You go in the mornings and the evenings. It's too hot at noon. Only... uh, Mad dogs, Englishmen, preachers, and certain immoral Samaritans go out in the noonday sun in uh, in that region. Uh, And there Jesus tells her, hey, if you ask me, I'll give you living water. I told Nicodemus, you need to be born again because Nicodemus is probably 70 or 80 and concerned with his mortality and the fact he's got all these wrinkles. So Jesus uses a metaphor, new life, new birth, her she needs to get water to survive for that day. He says, I'll give you living water. I'll give you eternal life. Ask me for it. Express active, receptive trust in me. I'll give it to you. Okay, you guys ready? How's, how's that sound? <laughs>
He's got power with that. It's a powerful one. F stands for what? First followers. Now, Japan tells you who they were. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. So that's really important. G stands for what? Great guess what happens there. Water into wine. First major miracle. Um, what's next? Harsh house cleaning. Messiah shows up after thousands of years of preparation. The system's all corrupt, right? Incredible interview. With who? Very religious, very moral, but he's not good enough. Nobody's so good they don't need salvation through faith in Christ. Nobody's so bad they can't have it. Nicodemus is the poster boy for good people aren't good enough. You need a perfect Savior. And then we've got Jive at Jacob's well, right? The Samaritan woman, right, Dennis? And she's just the flip side of Nicodemus, and yet Jesus offers both of them salvation through faith. Boy, it had to be all of faith and all of grace for it to work like that. Let's move to the second set of three. Hey, we're pretty much on track. You notice that? Unbelievable. I never do that. It's a miracle. Hey, it's a church. We believe in miracles right here. Um, K-L-M-N-O. Okay. Right here in the middle, okay? Henry, you ready for this? You're right in the middle of this whole team here, okay? Center section. K, what does that stand for? Kin kick out. Um, look at Luke 4. You won't believe this, but as Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth where he lived at, and worked as a technon for 18 years at least, and he's now begun his ministry in earnest and done miracles and been in Jerusalem and been baptized by the Messianic forerunner. He comes uh, back to his hometown, and they ask him to read the Scripture in the synagogue service. And they just so happen to have the scroll marked at Isaiah 61, which says, Luke 4.18, Jesus is reading this from, his old, from the synagogue's Old Testament scroll, and he says... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he might have even gone like this. He's reading this passage from 700 B.C. in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me uh, to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of spiritual sight to the blind, illustrated by some of the miracles of physical sight to the blind, and set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And then verse 21, for those of you who like short sermons, and don't we all? Not everybody in the room does. Uh, here's his sermon on that passage. Luke 4:21, And began to say to them, Today, this scripture, Isaiah 61, which everybody in the room knows is about the Messiah, has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm the Messiah of Isaiah 61, and that's when the kin kick him out of town. They can't handle the truth. They get very upset, very agitated, although they're impressed by his pulpit style. They're very offended by his content, and they take him out of town with intent to kill him. So uh, he moves his base of operation for his ministry not from his old hometown of Nazareth, but the Capernaum, which is a fishing village about 25 miles away. This is why he keeps bumping into fishermen, Sarah. You don't bump into a lot of fishermen in Nazareth. You're too far away from the lake. So L stands for location lateraled, and this is why Jesus' base of operation, Ray, is not in Nazareth, but it's in Capernaum because they kicked him out of Nazareth. At that point, we have the, what's called the Great Galilean Ministry of Jesus. It's about an 18-month period characterized by M and N. Jesus is doing everything he can to make himself knowable to the Jewish nation, which should be looking for him, by preaching marvelous messages like the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, friend, the content of the Sermon on the Mount is too good to preach once. He preached that essential content hundreds of times all over Galilee, all over Israel. He's in and out of Jerusalem at least three times a year for the required feast. And, Sean, during that same period, to confirm his claims and his message, he's neutralizing nature. You know, we talk about the laws of science. Guess who invented 9.8 meters per second squared for G? You know who invented that? That would be Jesus, okay? He typically works through that. He wasn't floating around and flying a lot, but 
He can overrule nature, the laws of nature, anytime he wants to. And he does a lot of big sign miracles to validate uh, his claims. And he consistently says, hey, if you don't believe my words, look at my works. I'm doing things nobody else can do to give you every opportunity, Israel and world, to realize I really am who I claim to be. And then after that 18-month period summarized by M&N, Marvelous messages like Sermon on the Mount, nature neutralized, big miracles nobody else could ever do, supernatural stuff you can't reproduce in the laboratory. Uh, finally, with all the pressure on them, the leaders of institutional Judaism have to publicly uh, come forward with a position on Jesus. And you know what it is? It's what Jesus calls the unpardonable sin. It's taught in Mark 3 and Matthew 12, and Luke 11, and it's eyewitnesses looking at Jesus and willfully, deliberately, categorically saying, we don't believe you're the Messiah. We don't want you to be the Savior. We believe you're a satanically possessed false prophet. It's kind of like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Yeah, he does miracles. Isn't it interesting? 2,000 years later, skeptics say Jesus didn't do the miracles. They just they were fooled by the miracles, sleight of hand. They thought he did a miracle. Uh, none of the uh, opponents that saw Jesus denied his miracles. They just had to explain away the source. And what were they saying? Well, yeah, he does miracles. Satan does a lot of miracles. He's a satanically possessed false prophet. Uh, kin kick out. Jesus, as we say, was based in Nazareth, would have worked in Sepphoris during the at least 18 years, age 12 to 30. He's working with his hands, but he moves to Capernaum. How come? because he get, gets kicked out of the uh, synagogue in Nazareth. Capernaum's a real place. There's uh, Jamie and Kristen in front of Capernaum a couple years ago, the, the front door there. Uh, this is the floor, the dark part there. You see that, Henry? The dark part, the dark stone there, is the floor Jesus would have walked on in the Capernaum synagogue. This is a uh, 4th century, 300 A.D. kind of uh, a synagogue that actually was built on top of that after an earthquake destroyed the original one, but you still got the floor there. So that's one of those authentic sites that you can actually see in in Nazareth or in, in uh, Israel today. 18-month period of Great Galilean ministry characterized by M&N. What is M? Not M&Ms. That's different. M&N. Marvelous messages like Sermon on the Mount and other things he teaches, but he teaches that essential content a lot and validates his claims with neutralizing nature, right? And then what happens? What do the religious leaders say about Jesus after they're forced to come clean and have an official policy position on him? What do they say? He's the Messiah. He's a satanically possessed false prophet. And when you look at the life of Christ, big picture, that letter O and then his response in parables, which we'll talk about in a minute, is really kind of the, the watershed. It's like the Pike's Peak of the ministry of Christ. During the first phase, until the leaders say he's satanically possessed, his emphasis for himself and his apostles, let's get the word out as far and wide as possible in Israel. Let's do big miracles. Let's preach the essential message so everybody has access to it. Bigger the better. Crowds get bigger, bigger, bigger. Miracles get bigger, bigger, bigger. And then boom, the opponents, in, a, in effect, if I can use this, they, and this isn't a word, but I've been saying it this week to freak out my wife, they de-inflate the ball. <laughs> you know how you de-inflate the ball of the ministry of Christ? You say, of course he does miracles. He's a satanically possessed false prophet. No. So guess what? When that's the diagnosis, when that's the party line, every time he does a miracle, he's doing another satanic work. See? So they've really kind of, humanly speaking, put him in a box because they've explained away his, miracle, his ministry, and every time he does something, it's more evidence to use against him, which is why he basically circles the wagons after that, and rather than the emphasis being proclamation to the nation, it's what? Preparation of the disciples for how to carry on after this, because at this point, once they say Jesus is a satanically possessed false prophet, hey, under the law, what was the penalty for uh, wizards who were demon-possessed? Capital punishment. 
So the religious leaders are going to get the, the Romans who control things politically to kill Jesus. And so you see a whole different tenor. He starts doing miracles in response to faith or great need, but he'll say stuff, don't tell anybody. Not, he's not saying don't lie about it. He's, he's not saying lie about it. He's just saying we don't need to generate a lot more publicity about this because the more miracles I do, the more evidence they have they're going to use against me. Everything he says and does can and will be used against him. And that's the situation. Once you see just that, that's, that's gold because you start realizing why he does certain things after O that he wouldn't have done before. Okay, center section. Clay, you ready? You got it? Henry, you ready? Okay, what does K stand for? Yeah, what's all that about? Why did they, why did they kick him out? He claimed to be the Messiah from Isaiah 61, and they couldn't handle it. L? Why is he always bumping into fishermen? Because he doesn't operate out of Capernaum. He operates out of, uh, out of Nazareth. He operates out of Capernaum, the fishing village. Is Capernaum a real place? All these things are real places, real people, real events. Uh, his great Galilee ministry is summed up by M and N. What does that stand for? Messages and, yeah, big miracles to proclaim and validate who he was to the nation of Israel. And then O is the Pike's Peak. What's that? Yeah. And what are they, what are they, what's the official party line? He's a satanically possessed false prophet. And they're doing that willfully, categorically, having seen him. The unpardonable sin is categorical, complete, absolute rejection of who Jesus is. Es probably, especially, and maybe only when you're looking him in the eyes. Okay, uh, I like to say to people, and I, as a pastor now for many years, I can't remember how long it's been so long, but it's been a while. I could do the calculations when I have time. Uh, yeah, uh, when people are concerned about the pardon, committing an unpardonable sin, if you're co concerned about it, you haven't done it. The people who do this don't care, okay? Now, guess what? You ready, Angie? P-Q-R-S-T. Those are my favorite letters. So, so I saved them for Homer because he's, he's my favorite. You know, people say, you know, Ron's your favorite. No, Ron's not my favorite. Andrew's, Andrew's not my favorite. I love Andrew, but he's not my favorite. Homer's my favorite, okay? I'm just coming out of the closet. Uh, in response to O, the audacious claim that he's a satanically possessed false prophet right in Matthew 12 is highlighted. The whole gospel of Matthew focuses on that dynamic. He immediately teaches eight parables. Parables are designed so that believers like Aubrey who really want to understand can upon reflection. It reveals truth, but it conceals, parables conceal truth from those who maybe only want to know so they can be more self-righteous or in this case use it against Jesus. And he teaches eight, a series of eight parables. He used to call it the Big Eight when there was a Big Eight conference. People understood that. But that was a long time ago, right? Can you remember the Big Eight? Now, how many teams are there in the Big Twelve? Ten. How many teams are there in the Big Ten? Twelve. If that was in the Bible, that'd be a mistake. But it's not. It's a technical term, right? Yeah. Uh, the first two parables are the parable of the sower. And he says, hey, the word of God is going to be sown far and wide with all kinds of varying responses. Then you got the wheat and the tares, but that should be translated the wheat and the weeds. And he says, as the word of God gets thrown all over the world and gets various responses, there'll also be a countersowing of error. Can you say Islam? Can you say Hinduism? Can you say Buddhism? Can you say agnosticism? Uh, can you say superlapsarianism? I don't know why you want to say that, but you could. So... That's what the parables are doing, letting the disciples know what's going to happen without giving the bad guys more uh, evidence against them, as it were. Uh, parables of Matthew 13. Quizzical questions. I'm thinking of two questions. Right after O and P, Jesus takes the guys way out of town to Caesarea Philippi, which was actually a pagan worship and resort center. And uh, we've been there. It's, it's at the base of Mount Hermon, which is a 9,200-foot mountain, which is the source of uh, all the water in Israel because it trickles through the limestone. And we have these quizzical questions. He basically asks them two questions. Now watch this. He's been ministering for almost two years. The leaders have now said he's satanically possessed. 
So he gets the disciples, the 12, out of town, away from the routine for a retreat, we call it. And he asks them two things. Okay, in light of what they're saying about me in Jerusalem, who do men, what's the average person saying about me now? And they report, hey, they still think, the average person thinks you're a good guy. They think you're a prophet. Maybe John the Baptist, which is kind of a dumb answer since they were contemporaries, you know. Maybe Jeremiah. Really complimentary things. But nobody in the Gallup poll is saying you're the Messiah. Then he says, but who do you say that I am? Now, after the leaders have rejected me and said I'm satanically possessed, who do you think I am? And Peter, who often gets it wrong, gets that one right. What does he say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So those are the two quizzical questions. Immediately after that statement of faith by Peter, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on top of Mount Hermon, 9,200-foot high mountain, majestic, beautiful, snow-capped most of the year. And he, in his full reality, unveils his glory of deity interact with Moses and Elijah, two of the biggest lights in the Old Testament, in front of these guys. Peter's enjoying the experience so much he wants to bivouac for a while. Uh, but Jesus said, no, no, we're only going to be here for a few minutes. You know? uh, and, that's, uh, and this is one of the problems with this system is you would think if somebody is coming up with A through Z for the life of Christ, that letter T has to be transfiguration, right? But it's not. It's tomb traumatized. What, what letter stands for the, for the transfiguration? It's R, okay, reality revealed. So there are some kind of disconnects there, but you, you can get it, okay? Um, yeah, reality revealed transfiguration. Now, after that, this is really interesting. Uh, Harmony, I bet you know this, but in John 10, Jesus is, is in Jerusalem in December before the April crucifixion. It's dangerous for him to be anywhere near Jerusalem. The guys don't want to be there but he's there because he's a patriotic Jewish man for a religious holiday, a Jewish military holiday. It's called Hanukkah. It was inaugurated in 165 B.C. It's not an Old Testament holiday. still celebrated today in December. It moves around the lunar calendar. And it's there where he makes a teaching, uh, a profound teaching session in uh, Jerusalem. And he uh, says, I and the Father are one in character, and what happens? The people in the temple area want to kill him for blasphemy because he's just a human being. But see, the thing is, Jesus is not just a human being. He's the God-man, one person with two natures, the unique person of the universe, the only mediator between God and man, and he clearly claims to be deity there, and they try to stone him, but he's not stoned. And then T talking about his power over death. That's John 10 would be the stoning stop. John 11, and now we're just a few months away from the crucifixion, Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, his good friends in Bethany, just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, just due east. And uh, Lazarus has been dead for four days. That's not just clinical death, that's biological death. I mean, he's been room temperature. His brain hasn't functioned for four days. And Jesus doesn't resurrect him. He resuscitates him, okay? To resuscitate means you get your physical life back, but he would die again. To be resurrected happens after you die when your soul is reunited with the atoms that put up, made up your body, supernaturally transformed. And that's what we see in the life of Jesus. That's what we're looking for as believers. Okay. We're working on uh, on Angie and, and Angie. We're going to make you the captain of this this team. Okay, we got P, Q, R, S, and T. Uh, parables prophesy the inner Advent period. Why is Jesus talking about parables? Because in the aftermath of him being opposed and being accused of being satanically uh, satanically possessed false prophet, he wants his his guys and the gals to know he's going to continue to work until he comes back. And he talks about the ups and downs and the spiritual dynamics of the inter-advent between the first and second coming period. Quizzical questions. What are the questions? He has two of them, right? Who do men, who do people, what's the Gallup poll saying about me after the leaders have rejected me? Uh, and that's one question. What was the second question? What, who do you say I am? He's talking to the group, all y'all. And Peter speaking for the group says what? 
There's no, we know. There's no doubt about it. We don't care what the, the bad guys say. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Transfiguration, he reveals after that amazing statement of faith by Peter, Peter, James, and John get to see with their eyes the unveiled glory of the incarnate Christ. Uh, then Jesus in a very uh, strategic location outside of the temple claims to be God, and they try to kill him for it, and then he proves his power over death by resuscitating Lazarus. Now, we've talked to the balcony. We talked to the left, the center, and the right, and uh, we have nobody else to talk to. So what are we going to do here? I guess I'm going to take... Uh, I'll, I'll cover this last one for you, okay? UVWXYZ. Understandable upset. Uh, we're talking about the cleansing of the temple. Now, in John 2, we have harrowing house cleaning at the beginning of the Messiah's ministry when the nation should have been looking, they weren't, okay? Three years later, after the Messiah has been in and out of Jerusalem at least three times, four times a year, he goes the three required times into Hanukkah. We know that, right? Uh, he's been all over the nation and even outside of it for three years. Guess what? System's still corrupt, now, this is one of those deals where skeptics are going to say, well, golly, John, the Gospel of John says Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say cleanse it at the end. question is, who's right? I mean, somebody must be wrong here, right? Skeptics start, the Bible is guilty until proven innocent, okay? I don't approach it like that. Let me tell you a story. In the, in the 1990s, a U.S. president named Bush sent American troops to a place called Iraq to try to bring down Saddam Hussein. About 10 years later, a whole different president named Bush sent troops to Iraq to bring down a character by the name of Saddam Hussein. Now, which one is it? Which one happened? The first one or the second one? They both happened. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, they both happened. George W. and uh, George uh, Herbert Walker, right? They, they, they both happened, right? Uh, Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln. Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy. You know that? I mean, so for me, this is no big deal. I mean, the point is, when the Messiah shows up, the system's corrupt. After he's there for three years, it's still corrupt. Nothing changes corrupt systems by and large, you know, which is why God doesn't really build systems as much as he changes hearts one heart at a time, right? So we love the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. <laughs> Try it out on for size nowadays, you know, you're going to see a different kind of thing. It's just me. Uh, v, Vision of Victory. This is the what's called the Olivet Discourse. There's a picture of the Mount of Olives from just uh, uh, west of the Temple Mount, right? Uh, looking back this way, yeah. And that church is called the Church of the Ascension. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there's the, there's the Mount of Olives, and Garden of Gethsemane is in there somewhere. And just a couple of days before the crucifixion, in Matthew 24 and 25, we have what's called the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus basically teaches the book of Revelation in two chapters. And he says, hey... Uh, I, I'm going to die for the sins of the world soon, and I'm going to be the lamb. But that's not the whole story, because I'm going to come back as the lion, and let me tell you how that works out in the end times. And he lays out his the larger picture of his program. God's not done yet. You don't have enough information to legitimately say, yes, God. And even if you do, he ain't done yet. When he is completely done with the program, you will like it, believer, until there's a lot about it now, I don't like all that much. I'm just telling you, okay? And that's basically what he's doing there, okay? So we saw, um, what was the letter before V? Understandable upset, right? I know the letters, I just can't always remember them. Uh, second cleansing of the temple, vision of victory, washing and wisdom. Wonder what that is. Upper room discourse, remember that? John 13 through 17, all about the spiritual dynamics, relational dynamics, the real spirituality. He washes their feet and then tells them, Basically, it's amazing the way ancients structured their thought, working in and away from the key idea that for Steve to be 
uh, able to do anything that's spiritually meaningful at Kelpro, at your house, uh, as a father, husband, at church. You've got to be abiding in Christ. You've got to be recognizing and responding uh, from the heart to the one who saved you. It's got to be a relational thing, not just a religious thing, right? Uh, and now we get to the very heart of the story, uh, X, Y, and Z. Uh, fudge factor, right? Expiatory execution. To expiate something means to wipe it clean, right? So expiatory execution is the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world on the cross. So Blake, everything that could keep good old Pastor Brad out of heaven, all the horrible things I thought, did, or said, or wanted to do, but didn't have enough time or money, it would have been terrible. Jesus died and paid for on the cross. He's paid my debt, and because of my faith in him, that debt has been applied to me. My debt legally is totally wiped clean, plus he puts his righteousness on top of me as my legal position. That's called justification by faith. It's all based on the work of Christ on the cross. What does he say at the end of the atoning sacrifice? It is finished, which doesn't mean we're done or whimper of resignation. Tetelestai means paid in full, mission accomplished. That's why he was there. He was born to die as our substitute. Um, we're told that Christ was uh, crucified at Golgotha. That's the Aramaic. Uh, we translate that Calvary. The word Calvary does not appear in any English Bible I know of because Calvary, Calvario, is a Latin word that when the Bible was translated into Latin in about 400 A.D., when they got Golgotha, they put Calvario. And then as we got English translations before and after King James, they tried to anglicize that because that was the term everybody was familiar with, and it became Calvary. But that's just kind of a kind of a, a term that's been devised to describe that. Do you see the skull in there? And the scholars debate this site or another one, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but I think that's the authentic one. It certainly looks like a skull to me. Uh, the expiation of Christ on the cross is validated by his literal bodily resurrection. Uh, you can go to the garden tomb in Jerusalem. That's Hebrew, Aramaic, or Hebrew and Arabic in, in English, I think. Um, real quick, don't have time to develop this, but uh, there are two possible uh, uh, locations for Calvary, Golgotha. The traditional one has a huge Catholic Greek Orthodox church built on top of it, very ornate, called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, the, the, the site that I favor is called Gordon's Calvary, uh, possible Golgotha. The point is either one or just outside the ancient city walls. Uh, when you go to the garden tomb, uh, and these are some pictures I took, you'll see some people that look familiar. If you're from West Virginia, uh, <laughs> you might recognize those two. That's Bonnie, right? That's uh, an earlier picture. There's no people in it. Here's, uh, there's Tom, there's Debbie, there's Bonnie, there's Jean, that's you. At the... Uh, the tomb. I always, I, I love this picture because this is me taking a picture of Jonathan, taking a picture of Jamie and Kristen, as Ron's taking a picture of Julie going into the tomb. It's still empty, too, isn't it? And there's, uh, I'm just waiting for a streetcar there, but no. Okay, and then Z, and uh, Zap from Zion. You guys realize the death of Christ. Three days later, what happens? So that expi expiatory execution. Three days later, we've got, yes, yay, Jesus did rise from the dead. Forty days after that, we have the ascension, where the resurrected Christ goes back to heaven in front of his disciples, and an angel says, stop looking, the same Jesus is going to come back visibly. So in the same way, his resurrection validates his crucifixion and the power of that. His ascension validates a second supernatural advent, a visible, a resurrected, all-powerful Christ come back. Okay? And as I say, the, uh, according to tradition, we don't know. Uh, this was in the 4th century. They decided that's the exact point where the, resurrect, uh, the ascension excuse, took place. But we don't know. It, it, it took someplace from, it was someplace from the Mount of Olives. may not have been right where that church was built. Okay? Boom. There's the life of Christ A through Z. That's a lot of stuff. But if we remember the alphabet, and that's where, I, that's where my weak point is, Remember, in the letters in order, under pressure, 
Let's see how many of us remember that. And I'm going to assume that uh, the balcony really knows the first part and you guys know the next part like that. But let's, try, let's try to do this thing. Angels announce birth in Bethlehem, carpentry career, dove descends, enemy entices. First followers, who were they? Yeah, Japan. Um, H is what? Harsh house cleaning. Very beginning of his ministry, the system's all corrupt. Great guests at the wedding in Cana. Jesus turns water into wine. Uh, I, got, I got them out of order, didn't I? I know I would do that. <laughs> First followers, great guests, harsh house cleaning. Let's keep them in order, Brad. I... Incredible interview with Nicodemus, very religious guy. You've got to believe in me to have eternal life. Jive at Jacob's well. Samaritan woman, very irreligious, immoral woman. She's been married five times and now living and divorced, married with a, living with her boyfriend now. He tells her, but he says, if you ask me for it, I'll give you. Uh, you come to Jesus as you are, he'll save you and start cleaning you up. It's not, I'm going to give you this, do this, stop doing this. It's not about what you do, just as I am. The hymn says, K, Ken, what, Ken, kick out? Why do they kick him out? Because he claimed to be the Messiah. He's just a hometown boy. He didn't go to seminary. Uh, yeah, that's what people think. L, so we're not based in Nazareth. We're based where? In the fishing village at Capernaum. The great Galilee ministry is M and N, marvelous messages, nature neutralized, 18-month period. And climaxed by and halted by O. Yeah, he's big deal. He does miracles. Who cares? He's satanic. Don't pay no attention. He's dangerous. Uh, P, parables, prophesied the spiritual dynamics of the time between then and when Christ comes back. And are we seeing the word being spread all over the world? Are we seeing different counter-isms that need to be wisms all over the world? Yeah. Uh, R stands for what? Reality revealed, Peter, James, and John. Right. Oh, yeah, I, I skipped Q again. I'm terrible at this. You know, next next time, Andrew, you're going to do it, okay? Next time we do this. Uh, yeah, quizzical questions. You guys know what those are, right? What's the Gallup poll saying now? Who did men say that I am? I mean, the leaders are saying, you know what they're saying. What's everybody else saying? They're still saying nice things, but nobody thinks you're the Messiah anymore. <laughs> what do you think? Christ, Son of living God. Reality revealed, boom, he takes Peter, James, and John, up to the top of Mount Hermon for the transfiguration. S. Yeah. Jesus never claimed to be God. Yeah, he did all over the place. And John 10's a good one because as soon as he says that, they try to stone him because he's, he says, I've done many good works from the Father. Which one are you stoning me for? Because you, a man, are claiming to be God. They understood what he meant. They just didn't believe it. Uh, T. Tomb traumatized the the supernatural resuscitation of Lazarus, right? Understandable upset. Why are we cleaning? Who's right? John or Matthew, Mark, and Luke? I would say they're both right, and knowing that both those things happen teach you a lesson about the fact that big uh, bureaucracies don't get to, don't typically change very much, no matter what happens. Um, v, Vision of victory, this is important. This is the last week before the crucifixion, and he wants the guys to know we've got a plan that's going to go on. My death's not going to end the plan. I'm going to be resurrected, and we're going to go on. But I'm not done yet. And that was 2,000 years ago. We're still waiting, but he's not done yet. But when he's done, we're all going to be very, very happy. Um, washing in wisdom. Upper room discourse. Remember, he washes their feet and teaches them the engine of spirituality. Then X, Y, and Z, the very heart of everything. Expiatory execution. The expiate means what? Wipe clean, right? Our Lord's death was a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Yes, uh, yay, the resurrection, literal bodily supernatural, it validates the saving power. I like to say a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one's the only one who can, right? And then what does Z stand for? Zap from Zion. So, hey, you know what? It's so worth the effort to spend a couple of days learning this. So, um, Harold killed himself to do this for me on Friday, and then I forgot to pass them out. So, Jeff, pass out these bookmarks.
Some of you already have a bookmark like this because Kathy Bowers did this about 10 years ago. But you're about to get a bookmark with the A through Z system on the bookmark, laminated. Put it in your Bible and make the effort this week as you read or pray, pull that baby out and walk through it. And pretty quickly, you'll control the whole life of Christ. And you can use that in so many different ways for spiritual benefit. But if you, 26 or too much before we close real quick here, I would say the five you don't want to miss are the supernatural conception, nine months later, the virgin birth, the perfect righteous life, where he keeps the law in our place, his substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world and for our sins personally, validated by his supernatural resurrection, and then the end of everything that's going to work out the way God wants it and we're going to really like it is validated by him being zapped from Zion. A bodily ascension anticipates a bodily supernatural return. Okay, So I would say focus on the person of Christ when you think of Christianity. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't think you're so bad you can't have it. You can have it. Don't think you're so good you don't need it. You need it. Don't look to yourself to save yourself. Look to the Savior. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. It's my fault. He can, and I want him to. He died for my sins on the cross. Everything I need to go to heaven, he did for me. I know Deborah Smith has trusted Christ in that way. I have. Have you? That's our invitation today. For most of us, many of us, if we're believers and uh, have trusted Christ, I think the call is to just realize how awesome. I think Angie was struck with just how great the Lord is, and that's why she asked permission to pray. And I'm glad you gave her permission. That was a good good call there. Good idea. Um, boy, you know, if you don't structure things too tightly, sometimes the Holy Spirit actually works in church. You know, so it's a good thing, right, Meg? Uh, so as as Christians, we need to focus on the greatness of Christ and. I think anything you're going through can be tempered by looking at your current crisis against the background of the, the death and the resurrection of the cross and the empty tomb. It gives you some perspective. It's the only way really we can maintain our sanity and our stability in a very troubled, sinful, evil world we live in. Okay, Father, we thank you for the greatness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You tell us in Colossians, it's your good pleasure for Jesus to, to get first fruits and everything in the church. And so we focus on him and his incarnation and his atonement and his resurrection and his ascension and his return today. But we praise you as the author of this program and we praise you, Holy Spirit, for being the communicator of this program and this person. And uh, for those of us who have trusted Christ, give us a more in-depth appreciation of the big picture of all that has been done just to set the foundation for so much more uh, to come and, and so much we have to look forward to. For anyone here this morning who's not, from the depth of their heart, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation because of who he is and what he did for them on the cross and what he validated through his resurrection. Draw them to yourself that they might receive you and receive the gift of eternal life. Uh, we thank you, Father, for uh, working in this building, throughout this building this morning. We pray you might continue to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.